Uh, we're going to talk about Kubla Khan by Samuel Taylor Coleridge, and then we're going to talk about Lord Byron. Uh, but first, Kubla Khan. Now, the story of how this poem was written is almost as famous as the poem itself. And you, you get the, that story in the, the headnote to the poem. In the summer of the year 1797, the author, then in ill health, had retired to a lonely farmhouse between Porlock and Linton on the Exmoor confines of, so of Somerset and Devonshire. In consequence of a slight indisposition, an anodyne had been prescribed, from the effect of which he fell asleep in his chair at the moment he was reading the following sentence or words of the same substance in Purchase Pilgrim, Pilgrimage. Here the Kubla Khan commanded a palace to be built and a stately garden thereunto, and thus ten miles of fertile ground were enclosed with a wall. Now, a couple of things about this. He's the, this is written in the third person. He's talking about the author, but he's talking about himself. This is what happened to Coleridge. Uh, and the, the anodyne is opium. Uh, Coleridge became, a, an, uh, became addicted to opium, and he had um, frequent visions like this on opium. Uh, now, note, as well as kind of falling asleep, he, so he's, he's drugged, he's falling asleep, and he reads this line uh, about Kublai Khan. And it says, he continued three hours in a profound sleep, uh, during which time he had the most vivid confidence that he could not have composed less than two to three hundred lines, if indeed, uh, if that indeed can be called composition, in which all the images rose up before him as things with a parallel production of the correspondent expressions, without any sensation or consciousness of effort. So he's having this, he's imagining himself, and notice that he's not imagining see, just seeing uh, uh, Xanadu and this palace that Kublai Khan uh, made. He's imagining writing a poem about it, a long poem, a 300-line poem about it, and that it's, it's just flowing through him. There's no creative struggle. It just kind of oozes out of him. That, that's a very romantic idea about how poetry happens. You just kind of go into a trance, and the poem just flows mystically out of you. Uh, on awaking, he appeared to himself to have a distinct recollection of the whole, and taking his pen, ink, and paper, instantly and eagerly wrote down the lines that are here presented, that are here preserved. At this moment, he was, unfortunately, called out by a person on business from Porlock, and detained by him above an hour, and on his return to his room, found, to his no small surprise and mortification, that though he still retained some vague and dim recollection of the general purport of the vision, yet with the exception of some eight or ten scattered lines and images, all the rest had passed away, like the images on the surface of a stream into which a stone had been cast. Uh, so he gets this interruption, this person on business from Porlock, um, who comes in and he spends an hour talking to him, then he can't remember it all. It's all gone. And this makes it very, I mean, this is very much like a dream, right? When you have dreams, they're very, very vivid, 
and you, they seem very vivid right when you wake up, but a few minutes of an hour later, you can't quite remember any of it. Uh, so he's he's kind of 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 keying into that idea. So there's a kind of a the, the story of this this poem. The reason it's not longer that there's not more of it uh, is is you know he was interrupted. He had this dream vision, and it was going to get it all down, but then it was interrupted. Um, it's a it's a kind of and you know who knows how much of this is is true. I mean obviously I think some of it must be true. How much of it is is an invented story. Um, how much of it is giving context to the poem. But let's look at the poem itself and how uh, Coleridge deals with that. In Xanadu did Kublai Khan a stately pleasure dome decree where Alf the sacred river ran through caverns measureless to man down to a sunless sea. All right, just that first sentence. First of all, notice how richly patterned the sounds of it are. In Xanadu did Kubla Khan. All those N's and A's and D's kind of, of, of chiming off each other. In Xanadu did Kubla Khan. Um, the alliterations and uh, assonances are really strong. It's, it's a kind of a uh, again, it's one of those things that even if you didn't know English, you would know that that sounded beautiful. Um, so Kublai Khan, a stately pleasure dome. Well, think about that. Stately pleasure dome. Uh, pleasure dome doesn't sound like it would be stately and serious. Uh, there's almost a paradox from the very moment it's described. It's not just a pleasure dome. It's a stately pleasure dome. Uh, and this pleasure dome is where Alf, the sacred river, ran through caverns, measureless to man, down to a sunless sea. So also from the beginning, there's this sense of geography. There's a river, there are these caverns, and there's a, a, a sunless sea, uh, uh, presumably underground. So twice five miles of fertile ground with walls and towers were girdled round, and there were gardens bright with sinuous rills, where blossomed many an incense-bearing tree. And here were forests, ancient as the hills, enfolding sunny spots of greenery. Again, the, the, the way he uses the imagery here, you have the uh, incense-bearing tree. Wait, what, what's an incense bearing? Uh, trees don't bear incense. Incense is something that burns. Trees are not supposed to burn. That's bad, right? But no, these are incense bearing trees. Um, and just and here were gardens, uh, and there were gardens, and here were forests. Here and there, gardens and forests. Uh, but of course, gardens are man-made. That's nature kind of controlled by man. A forest is natural. It's not controlled by man. Um, but they're forests, ancient as the hills, enfolding sunny spots of greenery. So the this, this twice five miles of fertile ground, it has both man-made and natural beauty in it. Look at the form of this poem as well. It's it's iambic and it rhymes, but that's about all that you can say 
about you know about the poem. It it keeps shifting. It, it uh, rhymes, but there's not a steady, repeated rhyme scheme. Um, it sometimes the lines are four beats, sometimes five beats, sometimes three beats. Um, it, it has a very kind of of uh, chaotic form to it. Uh, I, I think, think that fits with this idea of a vision just kind of flowing out of him. Look at the the second verse paragraph. Um, but oh, that deep romantic chasm which slanted down the green hills athwart a cedar cover, a savage place as holy and enchanted as ever beneath a waning moon was haunted by a woman wailing for her demon lover. Um, okay, again, look at the, the kinds of contradictions he gets into that description. There's this chasm, right? And he calls it's deep and romantic. Um, that, I don't think that means love. I think that means romance in the, the, the sense of uh, uh, romance adventure. Um, we have it's, this uh, deep romantic chasm is a savage place as holy and enchanted. Okay, just take the, the, the words in that line. Savage, holy, and enchanted. Those don't quite mesh together, right? You don't think of holy things as being savage or as being enchanted. Those are different registers. Those are different uh, uh, kinds of descriptions. But this place ha- keeps them all together. And then he goes on and gives a little uh, epic simile here. It's it's as holy and enchanted as air beneath a waning moon was haunted by a woman wailing for her demon lover. Okay, so this is a little story. It's like the, the moon is waning. It's 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 uh, on the uh, on the decline, and there's a woman wailing again. Those wonderful alliterations in the poem for her demon lover. Um. Uh, that sounds scary, right? We've got the demon lover. Um, and from this chasm, with ceaseless turmoil seething, as if this earth in fast, thick pants were breathing, um, now we've got uh, the idea of, of, of turmoil seething and thick, fast, thick pants. <sighs> Uh, it's a very erotic image, especially right after we have the woman wailing for her demon lover. It says, A mighty fountain momently was forced. So it's like a, it's like a geyser. It's like Old Faithful. The, the water forces out of it. And again, you don't have to be Sigmund Freud to think that that might have some erotic connotations as well. The mighty fountain momently was forced, amid whose swift, half-intermitted burst Huge fragments vaulted like redounding hail, or chaffy grain beneath the thresher's flail. And mid these dancing rocks, at once and ever, it flung up momently the sacred river. So these explosions of, of water and rocks that come on, um, uh, you know, intermittently um, bursting forth. Um, this is the, that deep romantic chasm. Again, it's very sensualized. 
five miles meandering with a mazy motion through wood and dale the sacred river ran then reached the caverns measureless to man and sank in tumult to a lifeless ocean and mid this tumult kubla heard from far ancestral voices prophesying war okay now look again he's doing the same thing that we saw Coleridge do quite a lot in Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, these repetitions, right? Uh, not exactly five miles meandering. We had earlier, so twice five miles of fertile ground uh, through which Dale, the sacred river, ran, where Alf, the sacred river, ran, uh, and reached the caverns measureless to man. Uh, again, another repetition. Uh, and we get down to a, a lifeless ocean, uh, now, before, it was a sunless sea. Now we have a lifeless ocean, again, parallel, but not quite the same. And uh, it ends with this idea of the prophesying war, um, which, again, seems to come out of nowhere. Why is it prophesying war? What's, what's this? We were getting back to Kublai Khan, but now we have uh, a prophesying war. Um, as As with... Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, this sets up very evocative uh, images and uh, motifs, but doesn't always explain them clearly to us. And I think that makes it more enticing. And we get next stanza. The shadow of that dome of pleasure floated midway on the waves. So this is the image, it's the, the, the reflection is of, of the pleasure dome you see in the ocean waves, right? The shadow of that dome of pleasure floated midway on the ocean, on the waves, where was heard the mingled measure from the fountain and the caves. It was a miracle of rare device, a sunny pleasure dome with caves of ice. So, again, we have these opposites. So we have the fountain and the caves, the fountain is liquid. It, you know, has burst this water up upward. The caves are, of course, very solid rock hidden underground, one flying up, one hidden below. Uh, again, mingling these opposite ideas. Uh, and, and it's a sunny pleasure dome with caves of ice. So it's both sunny and ice at the same time. The, the, the pleasure dome is above, the caves of ice below. They all fit together somehow. The final stanza kind of goes off on in a new direction. A damsel with a dulcimer in a vision once I saw. It was an Abyssinian maid, and, her, and on her dulcimer she played, singing of Mount Abora. So now we get another image. This is not the... The, the woman wailing for her demon lover. This is a damsel with a dulcimer. Uh, again, the wonderful sounds of this poem, damsel and dulcimer, uh, the D's and L's and S, S sounds uh, and M's, damsel with a dulcimer. Uh, it just, they just sounds beautiful together. Um, and she's playing this song. She becomes an image of the artist. And he says, could I revive within me her symphony and song to such a deep delight would win me that with music loud and long I would build that dome in air, that sunny dome, those caves of ice, 
So he's saying if he could recall that music that she made, he would have the power to recreate the pleasure dome that Kublai Khan made and build that dome in air, like castles in the air, uh, out of thin air, you know, out of pure imagination. This is about the, the power of, of, of art, of poetry, of music. Uh, the sun, that sunny dome, those caves of ice, and all who heard should see them there, and all should cry, Beware, beware, his flashing eyes, his floating hair. Weave a circle round him thrice, and close your eyes with holy dread, for he on honeydew hath fed, and drunk the milk of paradise." So it ends this little fragment of the poem, and remember he's he's at least claiming that there was this huge, long, you know, three hundred line poem that he had in mind. But it ends with this reaction to the the figure of the the artist, the poet, the singer, um, and it's a, it's a frightful one. Beware, beware. Um, Weave a circle round him thrice, like you know, kind of make a magical spell to keep him in in control. Um, and he on honeydew hath fed. Now th- those do not think of honeydew melons. Those that was not in the uh, English vocabulary yet. Honeydew is just uh, a, a kind of a, a idea of the uh, the liquid that collects on plants. It's kind of a, a, almost a magical thing here. Uh, it's and he's. Uh, Honeydew and the milk of paradise. This is almost like manna from uh, from the Bible, um, and the milk of paradise. Uh, so it ends with this image of the the power of the creator, the poet, uh, which in a way is what the whole poem is about. I mean, it's ostensibly about Kublai Khan decreeing this pleasure dome, but it's really Coleridge who is doing it. He's he's the architect, and he says quite explicitly. Oh, I wish I could just build it as perfectly as I did in my in my vision, and then everyone would see it and you know close their eyes and be in awe of me, in the same way they would be in awe of uh, of Kublai Khan. Uh, so the uh, e- even without the introduction to the poem, it's obviously a poem that's very much about the power of imagination and the power that uh, that. Uh, imagination can have over an audience. Um, that was very, very strong with Coleridge. I think you can see he was more interested in those that kind of purely imaginative creation than Wordsworth was. Wordsworth was more about finding inspiration in nature that allowed him to greater understanding of himself and of other things. Uh, Coleridge was more kind of exploring the, the, the outer limits of what the human could imagine that wasn't tied to reality, that created a reality um, in in his poems. That's why his poems seem more kind of phantasmagoric than than Wordsworth's do. All right, let's uh, turn our attention now to Lord Byron. Now, I usually go pretty light on the uh, author's biographies, but in Byron's case, his life is a very important part of his art. Uh, and I mentioned last time that Byron was an enormously popular poet during in his day. He was, he was much more popular than uh, Wordsworth or Coleridge. Um, though 
he came to be devalued in the Victorian age. If you look in the the uh, Norton Anthology's introduction to uh, uh, Lord Byron, uh, they point out that uh, the same Victorian critics who first described the, uh, the Romantic period as a literary period warned readers against the immorality of Byron's poetry, finding in his voluptuous imagination and aristocratic disdain for the commonplace an affront to their own middle-class values. So uh, he kind of went, uh, uh, did not fit with the Victorian taste, um, and that's one reason why he his, his uh, literary stock fell at that time, uh, though it's somewhat revived these days. Um, now, one of the important things that uh, Byron contributed to literature was the idea of the Byronic hero. Now, the the Byronic hero was first kind of introduced, or the first version that Byron wrote of him is in Child Herald, which we'll look at in a moment. But he also wrote versions of this character in other uh, many other of his works, including uh, maybe most famously Manfred. Um, and as they say, again, I'm, I'm reading from the Norton introduction, the, the, the Byronic, hero, Byronic hero is an alien, mysterious, and gloomy spirit, superior in his passions and powers to the common run of humanity, whom he regards with disdain. He harbors the torturing memory of an enormous nameless guilt that drives him toward an inevitable doom and he exerts an attraction on other characters that is the more compelling because it involves their terror at his obliviousness to ordinary humans' uh, concerns and values. Uh, now, this is a kind of, again, a, a kind of an anti-hero that we're more familiar with in, in modern times. Uh, he, is, he is rebellious, uh, but not in a political way. Uh, he's also highly eroticized. Uh, he's a ro- romantic hero in that sense, too. Um, and Byron presented himself as a kind of Byronic hero, uh, though it, he, it was more of a, a, an image that he created than a reality. And the roots of the Byronic hero go back into earlier literature. Uh, Shakespeare's character Hamlet is one uh, precursor for it, as is uh, Milton's Satan, uh, these kind of, of dark, tragic uh, figures, uh, and, and again, this is something that you know we see quite a lot, uh, quite more of today. Uh, but he kind of invented that, and and other literature. They they mention Heathcliff and Wuthering Heights, or Captain Ahab and Moby Dick, um, and the whole idea of the uh, Dracula is very much a Byronic hero, and the whole idea of the our modern idea of the vampire, and the uh, it, it very much fits with that. He's uh, he's dark. He does evil things, but there's something undeniably attractive about him. Uh, a couple of other things I want to mention about his biography, because I think it helps build a picture of him. His first uh, book of poems, uh, Hours of Idleness, was savaged by the, the critics. Um, and so Byron wrote a reply in a poem called English Bards and Scotch Reviewers, uh, which is a, a, a satire and where he's ridiculing uh, uh, contemporary poets like uh, Sir Walter Scott, William Wordsworth, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, and all of the critics at the Edinburgh Review who savaged his his uh, his poems. Um, 
he was famous for that kind of of thing um and he was he was famously a uh, um he was in a way he was one of the first celebrities and people were obsessed with his sex life which apparently was quite active um he fell in love with one woman, and at the time he was in love with her. He married another woman. Uh, is he, he married? His first wife was uh, Ann, Annabella Milbank, and with her he had a his uh, had a daughter, uh, Augusta Ada. Um, but his wife discovered that uh, Byron was having an affair with his half sister, Augusta Lee. Um, and so this kind of put an end to the relationship, and it became public, and he had to leave. There were uh, uh, rumors of his homosexual unions as well, and so in 1816, he left England for good. Uh, he was kind of a, a, an exile. He couldn't be seen in polite society. So Byron lived in, in Italy, in Venice, for quite some time. Uh, he also uh, became a soldier in the, the Greek War for Independence, uh, and it was actually at that time that he uh, caught a fever and, and died. He was only 36 when he died. That's another thing. You know, he, he's a very kind of, of, of modern celebrity in some ways. You know, he's a kind of James Dean figure. Uh, and if you look at the, the end of the introduction in the Norton Anthology, there's, I think, a very significant quote um, that Byron says about himself. He says, I am so changeable, being everything by turns and nothing long. I am such a strange melange of good and evil that it would be difficult to describe me. Um, and that's, I, I think, a good description of Byron and of the Byronic hero that he, was, uh, that he helped create. All right, let's look at Child Herald's Pilgrimage. Uh, first of all, I would point out that this is written in Spenserian stanzas. Uh, if you've read Edmund Spencer's The Fairy Queen, you'll be very familiar with this. It's uh, iambic pentameter, except for the last line, which has six beats instead of, of five, and it has a very strict rhyme scheme as well. Uh, it, it's not an easy form to, to write in, and uh, but... Uh, 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 Byron keeps it, uses it for this, and I think it gives a sense of a, a kind of an epic quality, an epic adventure to the, the story he's telling. Um, and he uses some of, of uh, uh, Spencer's archaic language as well. Start up in stanza two. Willom, uh, once upon a time, Willom in Albion's Isle there dwelt a youth. Now, Albion's Isle is England who nay in virtue's ways did take delight, but spent his days in riot most uncouth, and vexed with mirth the drowsy ear of night. Ah me, in sooth he was a shameless wight, sore given to revel and ungodly glee, few earthly things found favor in his sight, save concubines and carnal company and flouting wassailers of high and low degree. So this is the uh, the dissolute lifestyle, and it, it, it's often in this poem, it's hard to remember, wait, are we talking about Byron, or are we talking about Harold? And because Harold seems very much a kind of an, uh, an autobiographical, fictional portrait of, of 
Byron at times. But here he is. He's not. He's not virtuous. He he lives in, uh, uh, in with sensual pleasures, concubines, carnal company. Uh, that's the kind of life that he lives. And if you go to stanza five, for he through sin's long labyrinth had run, nor made atonement when he did amiss. He sighed to many, though he loved but one, and that loved one, alas, could ne'er be his. Ah, happy she, to scape from him whose kiss had been pollution unto aught so chaste, who soon had left her charms for vulgar bliss, and spoiled her goodly lands to gild his waste, nor calmed domestic peace had ever deigned to taste. All right, so we get this, again, th- that image of sin's long labyrinth. Uh, he, he's trapped in this labyrinth of, of sin, and he sighs to many, but he loves but one, but she cannot be his. Now, it's hard not to see this autobiographically as a, a reflection of his incestuous relationship with his half-sister, uh, somebody that he loves but is is cannot be his. And now... Child Harold was sore sick at heart, and from his fellow bacchanals would flee. Tis said at times the sullen tear would start, but pride congealed the drop within his eye. Apart he stalked in joyless reverie, and from his native land resolved to go, and visit scorching climes beyond the sea, with pleasure drugged he almost longed for woe, and even for change of scene would seek the shades below. Uh, that, that was he would risk hell just to have, a, 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 you know, to be able to travel to exotic places. Now this, of course, is exactly what happened to Byron. He was exiled from his country. Uh, he left his fellow Bacchanals. Bacchanal, Bacchus is the god of wine. So the people he was partying with, he, he left. And of course, he went and partied just as hard in Venice. But uh, but still, it's the idea of, of him leaving. And uh, again, Harold and Byron uh, are very, very similar. Now, if you pick up uh, uh, the section in from the third canto, uh, this was written sometime after the, the first two, uh, which were published and made Byron famous. He, he famously said that I, I awoke one morning to find myself famous. That's how quickly uh, this became a, an international sensation. But look at the beginning of the third canto. Is thy face like thy mother's, my fair child, Ada, sole daughter of my house and heart? When last I saw thy young blue eyes, they smiled, and when we parted, not as now we part, but with a hope, awaking with a start, the waters heave around me, and on high the winds lift up their voices. I depart whither I know not, but the hours gone by when Albion's lessening shores could grieve or glad mine eye. So here, Byron is talking very explicitly in his own voice. He's addressing his daughter. What do you look like, your mother? Uh, you know, I, I, the last time I saw you, you were a little baby. Have you grown up to to resemble your your mother? Um, he's on the on the ship, uh, cast away from her. 
So the explicitly autobiographical and the kind of veiled fictional autobiographical of the story of Child Harold you keep intersecting in the poem. They're, they're, they're not as, uh, as not very clearly distinguished sometimes. It's, it seems like it's all about Byron, really. Now look at uh, stanza seven. Yet must I think less wildly. I have thought too long and darkly till my brain became in its own eddy boiling and overwrought, a whirling gulf of fantasy and flame. And thus, untaught in youth my heart to tame, my springs of life were poisoned. Tis too late. Yet I am changed, though still enough the same in strength to bear what time cannot abate and feed on bitter fruits without accusing fate. All right, now let's, let's think about what he's saying about himself here. He wants to think less wildly, that he's been thinking too long and darkly, and he's uh, he's obsessing his his own brain, boiling, overwrought, a whirling gulf of fantasy and flame. Now, uh, like many romantic poets, uh, Byron is, is focuses on his own psychology, but think how different. This psychology is from Wordsworth. Wordsworth is about these moments of a profound, uh, almost theological insight that he gets into to nature and the unity he feels with nature. Byron is about this kind of uh, self-obsession, you know, boiling thoughts. I'm, I'm, I'm too wrapped up in myself. I'm obsessive-compulsive, all of that kind of thing. He says... Um, it says, untaught in youth, my heart to tame, uh, my springs of life were poisoned. Uh, I never learned how to control myself as a young man, so now it is too late. Um, it says, yet I am changed. Again, this is the very mercurial kind of figure that Byron is. Oh, it's too late, I can't change. Oh, yeah, we know, wait, actually, I have changed. Um, though still enough the same in strength to bear what time cannot abate. Uh, and fed on bitter fruits without accuse and feed on bitter fruits without accusing fate so he's strong enough to bear the adversities that have come to him but it's still it's a very kind of of chaotic psychology uh, that he has and here he turns back explicitly to uh, to Harold to the, the the character the fictive character uh, but again, he's still kind of examining himself here. And the next several stanzas are talking about Harold and his psychology. I want to look at uh, line 100, uh, stanza 12. But soon he knew himself the most unfit of men to herd with man, with whom he held little in common. So he he's not... He's not made for company. He, he's made to be part of the herd. This is part of the kind of aristocratic uh, disdain that the Byronic hero has. Untaught to submit his thoughts to others, though his soul was quelled in youth by his own thoughts. All right, again, he's not going to submit to other, though he is overwhelmed by his own thoughts, the same way that Byron said about himself, the kind of whirling passions that he has. Still uncompelled, he would not yield dominion of his mind to spirits against whom his own rebelled. 
uh, again, this this rebel, he's not going to 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 conform to society uh, to what other people want of him. Proud, though in desolation, which could find a life within itself to breathe without mankind. All right, so, well, I'm not fit for mankind. Oh, now I'm proud in desolation. I'm proud of being alone. I, I'm without mankind. Again, a lot of this is uh, the, the melancholy character of Hamlet uh, or the, the, the soliloquies that Satan has in Paradise Lost. It's that kind of a, a, a psychology. It's this outsider uh, who is, is obsessed with himself, kind of always soliloquizing about himself. And I think one of the clearest pictures of this this Byronic hero comes in the section of the poem where he's talking about Napoleon. This starts around on stanza 36. There sunk the greatest nor the worst of men, whose spirit antithetically mixed one moment of the mightiest and again on little objects with the firmness, with like firmness fixed extreme in all things. All right, look at that. He's, he's sunk. It was, he was neither the greatest nor the worst of men. Okay, but in some ways, he was the greatest and the worst uh, at the same time. A spirit antithetically mixed. So the antitheses, the opposites, were all mixed together. Uh, it was one moment of the mightiest and then on little objects with like firmness fixed. So he, he was obsessed with the great things and also the little things. Um, it says, extreme in all things. That's very Byronic. Uh, hadst thou been betwixt, that is, if, you, if, if you'd been more moderate, if you hadn't been so extreme in everything, thy throne had still been thine or never been. Okay, so if you haven't been like you were, you wouldn't have lost your empire the way Napoleon did. Or, come to think of it, if you hadn't been like that, you might never have gotten an empire. That that kind of greatness, uh, the fall and your greatness uh, come from the same thing. For daring made thy rise, made thy rise as fall. So, again, the daring made thy rise as fall. Your rise was a fall. The daring of it it was the, the fall was included in the rise. Again, this is very much like Satan in Paradise Lost. Thou seekst even now to reassume the imperial mean and shake again the world, the thunderer of the scene. Conqueror and captive of the earth thou art. Again, these mingled opposites, conqueror and captive. She trembles at thee still, and thy wild name was ne'er more brooded in men's minds than now that thou art nothing save the jest of fame. So you're, you're, you're actually, people are, are as obsessed with you now, more so that you, your, uh, your reign is over than they were when you were in power. Again, you're just the, the joke of fame, the jest of fame. Who wooed thee once, thy vassal, and became, that is, fame, wooed thee, thy vassal, and became the flatterer of thy fierceness. So fame is like a, 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 a woman who woos him and then flatters him into being fiercer, till thou wert a god unto thyself, nor less the same to the astounded kingdoms all inert, who deemed thee for a time 
whate'er thou didst assert. So Napoleon becomes a god to himself and is so powerful he imposes that on everyone else that whatever he calls himself, that's what they agree he is. O more or less than man, in high or low, battling with nations, flying from the field, now making monarch's necks thy footstool, now more than thy meanest soldier taught to yield, an empire thou couldst crush, command, rebuild, but govern not thy pettiest passion, nor, however deeply in men's spirits skilled, look through thine own, nor curb the lust of war, nor learn that tempered, tempted fate will leave the loftiest star. So here's the, those kind of tragic contradictions um, that you could uh, 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 you know, rebuild empires, but you couldn't control your own passions. Um, you may see deeply into men's spirits, but you couldn't see through your own. Um, and these are the kinds of, of contradictions, the kind of tragic contradictions you get in the Byronic hero. Uh, and Napoleon, uh, for in, in Byron's imagination here, is a, a, another type of that, that heroic uh, model. All right, I'd like to look now at uh, one of Byron's shorter lyric poems, So We'll Go No More A-Roving. This is a, a poem that is widely anthologized now, and I think with, with good reason. So we'll go no more a-roving, so late into the night, though the heart be still as loving, and the moon be still as bright. For the sword outwears its sheath, and the soul wears out the breast, and the heart must pause to breathe, and love itself have rest. Though the night was made for loving, and the day returns too soon, yet we'll go no more a-roving by the light of the moon." All right. Now, this is, a, a, a kind of, in some ways, a very simple poem. It's got a very a, kind of neat uh, rhythm and rhyme scheme. But I want to think about the ways he's using language here. So we'll go no more a-roving so late into the night. Um, just think about, first of all, the sounds of it. So go no more roving All those O's. Uh, sounds in that line. Um, and think about the way that the, the word so, um, the first so, so will go no more roving, it, so means therefore. The next one is so late, it's, it's, a, it's, an, ad, it's an adjective, right? How late? Uh, adverb, excuse me. So late, very late. Uh, so the word is repeated, but the meaning shifts. Another kind of a kind of conceptual rhyme there. Uh, Though the heart be still as loving, and the moon be still as bright. All right. So the the heart still loves, the moon still shines, uh, bright and loving. Um, and says, for the sword outwears its sheath, and the soul wears out the breast. Okay. Now, you've got a correspondence, a kind of parallelism there, right? An image, the sword outwears its sheath, uh, and the soul wears out. Again, outwears, wears out, you know, a beautiful little parallel there. And the same way the sword, the soul is like the sword inside its sheath. Uh, it's going to wear out the, the breast, the body. And the heart must pause to breathe and love itself have rest. Um, 
Now that kind of echoes with the first stanza, as though the heart be still as loving. Um, and here the heart must pause to breathe, the idea of the heart being pausing, being still, uh, which is not what it means in the first stanza, but echoes what it means in the first stanza. And, and those kinds of delicate little language games are going on all the time in this poem. Um, though the night was made for loving, uh, now we had, though the heart be still as loving. Um, and again, those lovings are the same word, but not quite the same meaning. Uh, and the day returns too soon, yet will go no more roving by the light of the moon. And that last line um, uh, has is really just two beats, by the light of the moon. And it gives it a kind of a finality. Uh, now, the all of that kind of stuff is, I think, what makes the, the poem so delightful to hear. Um, it, it, it keeps bouncing around meanings and shades of meaning, parallels, all of those little things that uh, give the, the poem life. And Byron was as good at that as anyone was. All right. Well, there are a lot more things that we could say about Byron and the, the, the poems I asked you to read, but I'm going to leave it there for now. For next time, I would like you to read uh, John Keats and read the odes that he wrote. He wrote these odes all in a, a fairly short space of time, right, one after the other. There's the Ode to Psyche, Ode to a Nightingale, Ode on a Grecian Urn, Ode on Melancholy, Ode on Indolence, and To Autumn, which isn't called an ode, but it is also an ode. Now, in addition to that, I'd like you to read a letter uh, that he wrote to uh, his brothers, George and Thomas. Uh, and the, the title in the Norton Anthology is Negative Capability. And that's a concept that uh, Keats talks about here, which is very famous, I think very, very important for understanding not just Keats, but a lot of, of great literature. Uh, so look at, the, uh, look at that letter, that negative capability, and think, what does that concept mean? And how does it apply to the odes that he's writing? How are the odes examples of Keats's negative capability? And how do the odes, what are the common themes or ideas that you see in these odes, these things he's talking to? What are the kind of central uh, obsessions or preoccupations that he has here? So we'll be looking at those poems for next time. Thank you for your attention, and I will talk to you again very soon.